0: Father in heaven, we are so grateful for the Lord's Day. What a good day it is. And will you bless all the designs you have in place for this day. Bless them to our good and to your own glory. We're thankful that we have opened before us the Word of God. Will you teach us? And will you help us in these moments? Uh, There is certainly... Uh, opposition to what we're about to do. The devil doesn't want us to hear this. The devil doesn't want our minds to be focused on the Word of God. And so will you give us grace and strength and help to resist the devil and to flee from all the things that he would fill our minds with. And may we focus our attention with faith upon the hearing of your words. So, Lord, bless both the preaching and the hearing. To our good and your glory, we pray with thanksgiving in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. How many of you are old enough to remember the phenomenon known as cabbage patch dolls? Oh, you laugh. They're still out there, you know. You can still buy them. I think they're relatively ugly. <laughs> and I'm sorry if that offends any of you little girls who just love your Cabbage Patch dolls. You are, uh, you are quite free to think they're the best thing ever. Okay, that was just my opinion. They took, Cabbage Patch dolls took the doll market by storm in the early 1980s. They were so popular that for a while it was almost impossible to find one. There was one Christmas right in the middle of that craze when our niece asked for a Cabbage Patch doll. Getting one was almost like winning the lottery. Her mother could not find one and told her so. Uh, Beth, it's not going to happen. Don't get your hopes up. But You would have to know Camilla's mother, our niece's grandmother. If Beth wanted a cabbage patch doll, then Grandma Fritz was going to move heaven and earth to find one. And she did. I don't think in the last 70 plus years of Christmas mornings... I, I, I'd be willing to wager that there has not been a more awestruck, wide-eyed, wonder-filled, breathtaking little girl than when Beth opened that box and there she was. And she named her Imogene. <laughs> How Imogene could strike wonder into anybody's heart, I have no idea. But that little girl was, it was, it was the most remarkable wonder awe and thrill and multiply the adjectives that i've seen in all of the christmases that i've enjoyed it was it was wide-eyed take your breath away wonder and i think we've lost that nearly it's a rare find anymore We've even watered down the language to describe that sense of wonder and awe. Awesome can be attributed to anything from a pair of tennis shoes to faded ripped jeans to the latest video game or the speed of your internet connection. I'm sorry. No. And I'm afraid that in many ways our senses have been dulled by how saturated our lives are with the remarkable things, truly remarkable about technology. It takes more and more for us to be wowed anymore. It takes more and more for us to gape at anything. Do we even know what the word gape means? (laughs) To gape is to stare in open mouth wide-eyed wonder. It's, it's when that double take registers and you're, uh, it, uh, that's to gape. When was the last time we gaped in anything? Particularly having to do with the things of heaven. If there's anything that is calculated to bring us to our knees in a fresh rekindled experience of pure wonder, it is the centerpiece of this season, the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Whatever you think about Christmas, however you handle all the commotion, it's an indisputable fact that Jesus was born to Joseph and Mary in a stable in Bethlehem on a particular day in history. For real. That's a double take kind of event. Did I just see what I think I saw? Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Now just camp on those words from Hark the Herald Angels Sing for a second. (laughs) Veiled in flesh. The Godhead, see. Are you kidding me? If ever there was a double take moment, that was it. Jesus, the Son of God, in a stable in Bethlehem. We need to get our sense of wonder back. We need to take our cup of awe and empty out the cold remnants and fill it with fresh-brewed wonder. And if you have the eyes to see it, there's a stable behind it inn in Bethlehem where fresh-brewed wonder is always on the menu. Fill it up every time you go to that stable in your mind's eye. And that's my purpose this morning in a very simple way to say, "Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. And in its own way, what we're thinking about this morning fits right in with what Pastor Mark started uh, for this Advent season. You remember, you remember what he said he was going to do? Unexpected, the confounding comfort of Christmas. Was that your first one? And the second one never got out of the gate, Right? The second one was going to be the unexpected family of Jesus. So today, I stole this, Pastor Mark. Today is the unexpected coming of Jesus. He did not come the way we would have expected him to come. So I'd like us to think about three things this morning. What might you have expected when Jesus came into the world? I'm think about who he was, who he is. How might you have expected him to show up? Number two, what really happened when he came? How did he show up? And number three, why did he come the way he did? So let's go back to number one. What might have you expected when Jesus came into the world? So let's remember who it is we're talking about here. The angel in Matthew's account of Christ's birth said he would be called Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. That's enough to get our attention, isn't it? God with us. That's who we're talking about. We're talking about God with us. What happened in other places when God showed up? I mean people hit the ground. They they were they were shaken to the core. Let's remember who we're talking about. God with us. The angel Gabriel just came to Mary when she was in her 6th month of pregnancy and said, "And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom. There will be no end. Whew! That's who's coming. He's going to sit on the throne of David. There'll be no end to his kingdom. That's who showed up in Bethlehem. Remember who we're talking about. The angels announced to the shepherds, Call him Christ, the Lord, Christ, Messiah, the long-promised deliverer of the Old Testament, the Lord, the sovereign ruler of the universe, the one before whom every knee will someday bow, the Son of God, God in the flesh. Remember who we're talking about. How would you expect him to come? Luke 2 tells us what happened when Mary and Joseph took their newborn to the temple to be circumcised. The old man, Simeon, he understood. He got it. He was there waiting to see the promised Messiah. And Luke tells us, and he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord... Now you let your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. He's holding a baby. Just past a week old. They were circumcised when they were eight days. He was holding that baby in his arms. And he said... For my eyes have seen, and he's looking at that baby, and he says, my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation of the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. That got their attention. It certainly had Simeon's attention. And the rest of Scripture, both Old and New Testaments, bear out what the angels said. That this child born in Bethlehem was God in the flesh. John's description is powerful in its simplicity. The Word was God. You know, we read that wrong all the time. You know how we read it? In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. No, 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 no. I got the emphasis on the wrong syllable. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. The Word was God. That's who we're talking about here. The prophets foretold it. For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given. Okay, get the language here. For unto us. A grown man with a crown, and a scepter, and stallions, and chariots, and angels, and no, for unto us a son is born, unto us a child is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That's who we're talking about that showed up in Bethlehem. And Paul makes it abundantly clear, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form this was the son of god god in the flesh the creator sustainer ruler and governor of the universe the eternal son of god who always was who never had a beginning who knew the unfiltered bliss of heaven who knew the uninterrupted and glorious worship of angels who enjoyed the purest, unstained fellowship with the Father and the Holy Spirit, who shared in the Father's glory? Who we're talking about here is omniscient. There's nothing for him to learn, there's nothing he needs to know. Omnipotent, all powerful, he's able to do all his holy will. There's nothing he cannot do that he wills to do. He's stymied by nothing, omnipresent, everywhere, present all the time. There's nowhere he's not. There's no you can escape His presence. This God who spoke the universe into being out of nothing by the mere word of His power. This God who inhabits eternity. This God, infinite, eternal. You know the catechism question, boys and girls? Infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in His being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth is the one of whom the angel said, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Now what might you expect if this one we've been talking about shows up? What might you expect? Don't we pull the stops out if a high-level dignitary? Not sure we have too many of those left. Or a very popular entertainer comes to town. Or when the national basketball champions come back from the Final Four. Ain't happening for a certain team from this state this year. But, you know, yeah, come on. Shouldn't we pull out the stops when our soldiers come home? Scripture gives us some clues that the stops are pulled out when God comes, when God shows up. What happened when God showed up at Mount Sinai in Exodus 19? Now, Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him with thunder. God showed up, and there was lightning and thunder and earthquakes and smoke and fire. And it wasn't coming out of a machine offstage. Isaiah 6, in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne When God showed up in the temple, what happened? Lofty and exalted with the train of his robe, filling the temple, seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, face. with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew and called out to one another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of Him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Isn't this what you would expect when God shows up? You would expect the sky to split open. You'd expect everything on earth to hit the ground. You'd expect the sky to be filled with angels. You'd expect a glory that would outshine every star and that could not be gazed upon. If God showed up, wouldn't that be fitting for God to come to earth? That's what you might expect. It's what so many of the people, Jewish people of Jesus' day, expected. They dreamed of a king who would send Rome away, not of a baby asleep on the hay. That's what you might expect. And we'd have reason to expect if God showed up. But now secondly, what actually happened when God showed up in the person of Jesus? Well, there were a few little glimpses of what would have been appropriate. An angel appeared to some shepherds with the announcement, and then he was joined by a multitude of angels, not nearly all of them. And while it struck fear into the shepherds, the angels showing up, outside Bethlehem in the field of the shepherds and singing didn't seem to have raised much of a ruckus in Bethlehem because when the shepherds got there they didn't have to weave their way through the crowds of people who'd come to see what all the fuss was about. We don't read that lamps began to flicker all over town as sleepy citizens got up to see what was the matter. No. It was a, there was a nice, pretty cool display out there by the field for the shepherds, but it didn't raise much noise anywhere else. What happened to the shepherds was pretty cool, but it was a little bit a sample of what should have been. Then there was the star. That was pretty cool. But it didn't always seem to get the attention of a few wise men from the east. Who showed up with some gifts in their worship after Mary and Joseph had found more suitable lodging, but we don't read too many other people yakking about that star. What was that about? There wasn't a crowd around the house where Joseph and Mary and the baby Jesus stayed for a while? It was the wise men. That's pretty much it. And apart from those little glimpses of glory, what was there? There was a tiny little baby who over the course of the last nine months had been woven together in a womb that he created. There were no downy soft receiving blankets or designer cribs or skilled doctor's hands or newborn pampers. Our little sinner babies receive a welcome a hundred times more magnificent than the welcome Jesus got. There was only a rough-hewn feeding trough more accustomed to holding hay than deity. He would cry when he was hungry. He didn't come out of the womb speaking fluent Aramaic. He could be held in the crook of one arm. from fingertips to elbow and totally dependent. He would have to have his diaper or whatever they used changed. He would have to learn how to walk on little feet that he had designed. He sucked a thumb. Okay, I don't know if he sucked his thumb. But you get the picture? Thumbs are the most amazing things, aren't they? He designed thumbs. And there he is sucking on one. All he could do was the vocal cords that he had designed and created to sing and to speak. All he could do was gurgle and coo and cry. He would have to learn his letters and numbers and the colors of the rainbow that he had placed in the sky. Times without number. He'd have to learn red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, and violet. I had to get Roy G. Biv there. Y'all remember Roy? Colors of the rainbow. He would have to learn the colors of the rainbow that he had put in the sky over and over and over again. The Lord of Lords would learn submission and obedience to his earthly parents. He would have to learn portions of Scripture by heart, Scriptures that he had put into the minds of Moses and David and the prophets. And he'd have to learn them. He would have to learn the fire was hot and knives were sharp and hammers could really hurt and splinters were really painful and nails were for pounding into wood in the shop. And before long, he would have to flee like a fugitive out of Bethlehem with his family to Egypt to escape the hatred of a jealous Herod who had heard that a king had been born. And when it was safe to return out of Egypt, he grew up in the despised no account village of Nazareth out of which nothing good ever came. Not what you would expect for the Son of God to come into the world. We would expect all the other stuff. Not that. But this first coming was not meant to be with glory. It was meant to be with humiliation. That was the design from before the foundation of the world. It was part of the agreement between the Father and the Son. He chose the path of humiliation, and all that such a path would involve. It was not forced on him, nor did he take it up with a reluctant resignation. Scripture says he delighted to do God's will. Listen to Warfield, an old theologian. So mighty was his love, so colossal the divine purpose to save, that he, Jesus, thought nothing of his divine majesty, nothing of his unsullied blessedness, nothing of his equality with God. He made no account of himself. Paul says, who although existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. He humbled himself. By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. But what gave depth and meaning and reality to his humiliation was that he deserved to come with glory. It's what he deserved. but he gave it up. He was worthy of so much more. He was used to so much more, but he gave it up and he let it go and he emptied himself and he made himself nothing all the way from the womb to the grave. Not what we would have expected for the Son of God to show up on earth. But what we got was utter Humiliation that cannot even be compared to any other sort of humiliation ever on the planet. So why? Why did he come the way he did? Why didn't, why didn't he just come and blast it all and fix everything and boom, we're done? Because that's not the way it works. Why the humiliation of being made in the likes of men? Why the limitations and weakness of flesh and blood? Why a real humanity joined to his real deity? Let me focus and answer that question on just two things. And there's volumes that have been written about this. He came the way he did. So that he he could work out a full, real, and perfect righteousness to put to the account of every sinner who trusted him for it that's one, so that he could work out a full, perfect, real righteousness to put to the account of sinners. And he came the way he did so that he could suffer the full penalty of the law for every violation of that law by every sinner who would ever look to Jesus for forgiveness. That's it. He came to work out a perfect righteousness. He came to take our punishment. That's it. It's what theologians sometimes call the active and passive obedience of Christ. And it has to do with this. God's law really means something. It cannot just be ignored, swept under the carpet. Uh, It's no big deal. It'll, it'll It'll all come out in the wash. No, it won't. When God said, you shall have no other gods before me, He meant every single word of that, and it had to be kept. God doesn't throw words around like sometimes we as parents do. Now, Johnny, no no reference to any Johns who are here, okay? Now, Johnny, I mean it. You do that one more time, and you're going to bed without your supper. And he does it six more times and he still gets his supper. You didn't really mean it, did you? Even though you said you did. That's not God. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make any graven image. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You shall not steal. You shall not lie. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not covet. He meant it. Every word of it. And none of us have kept it. So what are we going to do? The law of God still stands and must be kept. And Jesus came to keep it. God's justice requires it to be so. My favorite theologian, John Murray in his book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, the law of God has both penal sanctions and positive demands. It demands not only the full discharge of its precepts, but also the infliction of penalty for all infractions and shortcomings. Christ took care of the guilt of sin and perfectly fulfilled the demands of righteousness. He perfectly met both the penal and the perceptive requirements of God's law. Christ's obedience was vicarious, that means substitutionary, in the the bearing of the full judgment of God upon sin, and it was vicarious in the full discharge of the demands of righteousness. All that is to say that for sinners like you and me to be accepted in the sight of God, we needed a real and perfect righteousness to be put to our account, and we needed a real and perfect and full payment to remove our guilt. We needed a real man to keep the law for us and we needed a real man who was able to suffer and die to suffer the penalty of the law for us. That's why he came the way he did. Just as Adam was the real man who plunged us into unrighteousness and guilt, so Jesus was the real man who undid Adam's failures by working out a perfect righteousness and paying for all of our sins. For as, as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. Romans five nineteen. Let me work that out just a little bit for you. It means, wrap your mind around this, okay? I mean try. Try. It means that the Lord Jesus, even as a baby, never sinned. He never cried with attitude. There's a difference, mom, isn't there? There's a difference between the baby crying because he's hungry and he can't say, excuse me, mom, but if you're not busy, could you get my supper? You know how he says that? Wah! But then he can cry with attitude, too. Right? Jesus never cried with attitude. He never, he never cried with attitude. He never cried with temper. He never kicked his little feet in anger. Not ever once did he kick with anger. Did he kick his feet? Of course he kicked his feet. But he didn't kick his feet because he was mad at Mary for having to wipe his messy bottom and yes he had one because he was a real person of flesh and blood and all the systems worked he never grabbed in selfishness he never lied when he cried your kids you ever catch your kids lying in their crying they're not really hungry but they want you to think they are He never lied when he cried. He never sinned as a young boy. He was never selfish with his brothers, though it would have been easy. He was never impatient with his mother. He always came. He always came. He always came when she called him for supper. Every single time. Think about that, you guys and girls that are under the age of 16 or maybe under the age of 18 or maybe under the age of 20. Please come for supper. It's ready. Jesus made a beeline for mom. He always respected those in authority over him. He never once cheated or lied. Do you know why? I tell this to our school kids all the time. You know why Jesus never sinned? You know why Jesus never lied? You know why Jesus never cheated? You know why Jesus never stole something that didn't belong to? You know why Jesus never disobeyed his mom or dad? What's the answer? I saw it over here. Because he knew you would. And somebody had to do it right for me because I couldn't. And he did. He was never impatient. He always respected those in authority over him. Never cheated or lied. Always spoke the truth. As a teenager and young man, Though he was tempted in all points like as we are, and though he felt that temptation more than you and I have ever felt it. You know why? Because we, you know, if if you can put temptation on a scale like this, here's zero, and here's a whole bunch of temptation. All right, you with me? Here's zero, here's a whole bunch. We give in about here. I mean, we're barely past zero, and we cave. Jesus went all the way to the farthest end of the spectrum. Satan could, could push at him, and he never caved. He knew what it was to resist. Oh, he, he didn't resist. He never caved because he was Jesus. He was Jesus who was a real man who felt everything that we feel, and he resisted all the way past the devil's worst temptation. He always, as a teenager and a young man, he always acted with kindness and respect. He never loved anybody or anything more than God. He never looked with lust at a young lady. He always thought the best and never engaged in gossip. He never lost his temper when things didn't work right. He never turned on a friend. He never cursed when he smashed his finger in his dad's carpenter shop. He never turned on a friend. He always worked hard. He never gave him to laziness. He never deceived his parents. He never felt sorry for himself. He was content with whatever he had always. He kept the Sabbath day every week. He never stomped away from his mother. And as a man, he never reviled, even when he was reviled, over and over again. His thoughts were always pure. His love for God never waned. His sense of dependence on God never waned. He never blew his top. He never spoke an inappropriate word. His patience was never ruffled. He always pleased his Father in heaven. Do you see? Do you see the point? He was tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin. In whatever countless ways I have broken God's law, known or unknown to me, he kept it. There is not a part, an implication, a precept, a principle, a jot or a tittle of God's law that he has not kept. And he kept it perfectly. And why? Why? Because somebody had to do it right for me. Or I would never stand, and I'm using this in every sense of seriousness, I would never stand a snowball's chance in hell Of gaining acceptance with God. If he had not kept it for me. For every selfish act of mine. He was unselfish. For every lie that has stained my lips. Or simply crossed my mind. He spoke the truth. For every act of selfish sinful independence. He acted in utter and complete dependence upon his Father in heaven. For every impure thought of mine, his was pure and clean as the new fallen snow. For every breakdown in my love for God, his love for his Father was unbroken. For every murderous, angry thought or word or deed, his thoughts, words and deeds were full of love and compassion and mercy. And he lived that life of unblemished righteousness for me. He did that for me, and He did that for you. You know how I know that? Because that Christmas text says there is born for you in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. There is born for you in the city of David, for you, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The desire of the Apostle Paul expressed in Philippians 3.9 was not some sort of pie-in-the-sky hope. It was not the impossible dream. It was rooted in the reality of the perfect, real, spotless righteousness of Christ. He said that I may be found in him. Philippians 3.9, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. And he worked out all of that perfect righteousness, and he holds it out to me, and he says here, this is for you, and it's as much yours As if you had done it all yourself. It's yours. It's to your account. It's imputed to you. For real. And then what happened? After living the only perfect life ever lived out on this earth under the law of God. He gave himself up to die, bearing the guilt of every sinner who had ever come to trust in him, so that not only do we have a perfect righteousness, but our guilt is gone. The punishment we deserve has been born for us, and the wrath has been expended, and there's not one ounce of wrath left to fall on this poor sinner's head, ever, because it fell on him. All of it fell on him. The transactions that the theologians call the counter imputations of sin and righteousness, whereby my sins are put to his account and his righteousness is put to my account, were not something merely worked out on paper in the courtroom of heaven, all tidy and neat and legal, so that nobody would have to really do anything or get dirty or hurt. Yeah, they were worked out in heaven between the Father and the Son. And then the Son came down to earth to give them substance and reality. He came to where sin had worked its curse and fouled not only earth but its inhabitants. He came to where God's law had been ignored and trampled and laughed at and mocked. He came to where God had been hated and His prophets had been killed. And in that crucible called earth, the Son of God lived for me and died for me so that I could be forgiven and called righteous in the courts of heaven for real. His perfect spotless righteousness actually and really becomes mine. And my sin, all of it, every thought, word, and deed actually became his as if he had committed them all and the wrath of God fell. All of it. On him. And not on me. That's why he came the way he did. now what do we do with that that is so much more than a double take event <laughs> did i did i see what i think i saw no you saw there was way more than that what we do what we do, what do we do with all that what we do is ask his forgiveness For how little we've just simply adored him. For all of that. We ask him to forgive us. For feeling more wonder and thrill in a video game. Than we felt in his presence. We ask him to forgive us for being more excited about whatever earthly thing than we are about Him. What do we do with that? We let the wonder of the incarnation wash over us all over again. And we take our cup of awe to that stable and we fill it up We come. Let us adore him. But for some of you, all that is nothing more than ba humbug. Listen, if you've ba humbugged Jesus your whole life, and for some of you, you've been ba humbugging Jesus for eight years because you're eight years old. And some of you have been ba humbugging Jesus for 10 years because you're 10 years old and you're still not a Christian. There's a day coming when Jesus will come back to earth and it ain't going to be nothing like when the first time he came. Because he's coming, Matthew 25 says, with all the angels. Not just, not just a choir for the shepherds. He's coming with all the angels And he's coming in power and glory, blazing glory and irresistible might. And he's coming not in humiliation, but in power and glory with all his angels and every eye will see him. And those who've said bah humbug to Jesus all their lives will cry for the rocks and the mountains to fall on them and to hide them from the glory and wrath of his coming. Don't you be in that number. Because today, 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 December the 13th, 2020, and the crazier that it's been today, you can make sure that that never happens to you by coming in faith and repentance to Jesus right now. And you take him, you take him for who he is. And you take the righteousness that he worked out for you and you take the penalty that he paid so you don't have to pay it and you say, Jesus, I need that for me. I'm sorry, it's taken me so long to figure that out. But will you give it to me? And his answer is always yes. I will give it to you. So if you have breath in your lungs this morning, then call upon this Savior of sinners to forgive you and cover you with his righteousness. And then you too will come to adore him. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, forgive us for the puny little adoration we give you. Forgive us for how easy we're taken with much lesser things. Help us to come now today and every day to adore you and bring some to adore you for the first time we pray in jesus name amen